Shalom, brothers and sisters. I bring you good news of good tidings from the People's Republic of Berserkli. Welcome to uh, this session. Thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to speak to you. And um, let me uh, begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we look to you now through the Holy Scriptures that you would remind and instruct and enable your people to be effectual doers of the word and not just be forgetful hearers, that you would receive glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. The text I have uh, selected for uh, this session is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 to 12. That is the passage that follows right after our theme passage, taking every thought captive. This is the reading of God's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 7. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that we are in word by letter when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. That was the reading of God's word. We're in a generation uh, that lacks courage. We're in a generation that despises authority. Uh, we live in a generation that searches for men and women of integrity and consistency. And these things are not just societal problems. Uh, these are realities within the church of Jesus Christ. The evangelical church is bombarded by deceptive and false ideologies and spiritual movements that are constantly undermining the authority of God's word and the purity of the gospel. And so the enemy is continually using his cunning and deceptive strategies to deceive and to mislead, misdirect, and cripple many who are weak and naive and unsuspecting in the church of Jesus Christ. If you are seasoned in your faith because you have been walking by faith in Christ for many years, then you are part of the solution in opposing the enemy and defending the weak. The warriors of Christ are to carefully protect and guard the people of God from spiritual deceptions of the enemy. That's a critical function of a spiritual warrior uh, which cannot be underestimated, especially now in the church when there's so much deception. Moses reminded the Israelites that God would permit the rise of false prophets among them to test them. 
in Deuteronomy 13.3, Scripture says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God allows influential individuals to arise within the ranks of the people so that they might be tested to see if they truly love the Lord with all their being. God allowed that in Israel to test her. Do you not think that God would also allow that in the church of Jesus Christ? When there's so many religious profession and religious activity, but not a genuine devotion to the Lord internally. God spoke through Jeremiah the prophet against the wholesale welcoming of the false prophets during Israel's history at this very dark and critical point. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? And in Jeremiah 14, 14, then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Here, they're identified that they speak falsehood, that they conjured up, that they made up, that they distorted on their own, and they are deceived by their own lies because they tell it so often. Jeremiah 23, verse 32 says, Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them, nor command them, nor do they furnish this people with the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. And of course, our Lord Jesus warned of future generations that false prophets will come, and he warned the church, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come as sheeps, in sheep's clothing, which means that they will appear to be harmless and sweet and lovable people, just like any other Christian. And that's the danger of it all. It's because it is not the rank atheists or the clever cult leader, or an aberrant movement that's out there that we are to be aware of and in danger of. And we need to be uh, sensitive to that as well, but the greater danger is the stealthy danger already in the church. Romans sixteen eighteen, Apostle Paul unmasks them. He says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And the reason why so many of these false teachers seem so believable, so compelling, and so many people welcome them and follow them, is that they are so good at deception, and they themselves are deceived. Self-deception is one of the great judgments of God. Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They are actively involved in peddling their lies, but they believe their own lies as if it were true because they've done it so many times. 
You, you get good at it. If you keep practicing what you enjoy doing, you eventually get good at it. And these people have seared their consciences. Initially, the impact of the Word of God that provoked them no longer bothers them. It's the bothering less and less of sin, the insensitivity of their hearts that are so deceived. And they're so good at deceiving others. Paul looked into the faces of the Ephesian elders and reminded them what would happen in their near future. And I wonder if some of those men who were there, the Ephesian elders, were also implicated in what Paul warned. In Acts 20, verse 30, From among your own selves men will arise. Not could, not may, but they will. Paul knew. He knew the spiritual conditions of Ephesus, that it was ripe for spiritual attack and assault. And he said that speaking, they would speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The name of the game was control manipulate for the false teachers. So could it be possible that some of them who heard Paul's warnings, who were taught by the apostle himself, who may even have been approved and appointed by the apostle at one time, could be guilty of doing exactly what is warned and forbidden? Could it be possible that some of the elders of Ephesus could speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them? Now, you know, these men are not the typical followers. They're charismatic leaders. That's why they could draw the disciples after them. They have a motive that they're working out, and it is against the motive of God revealed in Scripture. In history, if Korah could be self-deceived to think that he could replace Moses as a better leader and lead a rebellious nation according to his own beliefs, then yes, it is possible even for some Ephesian elders to become false teachers and lead away the disciples. If Simon Magus can be self-deceived to think that he could manipulate the Holy Spirit's power for his own sinful, selfish gain, then yes, it is quite possible for people who once were considered faithful followers of Jesus to end up being self-promoting charlatans. If Nicholas, one of the seven deacons, can be self-deceived and lead a false movement by the end of the first century, who are called the Nicolaitans in the book of Revelation, who are condemned by the Lord Jesus, yes, it's quite possible that even men who were once approved, had the hands of the apostles laid on them, trusted and trustworthy at one time, it is quite possible. A sin is powerful. Without the gracious protection of the Lord, without a humble dependence upon Him, all of us are susceptible to its powers. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm not as concerned about some cultist out there, some atheist out there, some prosperity preacher out there. I'm really concerned about those influential people in, within the evangelical churches who are just looking for an opportunity to raise their ugly head, to speak perverse things, to draw away people, not to serve them, not to minister to them, not to help them to grow in their faith to Jesus Christ, but to manipulate them for their own selfish purposes, whether it be to just have a queer sense of an internal delight in winning, or those who just want to collect people 
who follow them as their friends or look to them as a leader or even as nefarious as to manipulate them, start a new movement, and to fleece them. Whatever the motives may be, the evangelical church is in grave danger if we are not sensitive and aware and utterly dependent on the Lord Jesus in prayer, fully donned with the full armor of God. If we're not prepared, then this is not some historical study of a church in Greece. No, this is your church. This is our church. By the way, we are living in Corinth. Uh, Berkeley, Corinth, it's about the same. It is a godless place of dark philosophy. These people deceived by the enemy. This is the place where the glory of the gospel came to us by the grace of God to save us and bring us together in the body of Christ. It is a glorious and the most privileged place to be, to be the light shining in a dark place. Well, we still need biblical authority and we still need men and women of integrity. These things are missing in our culture at large, but they're in in short supply in the church of Jesus Christ. And so from this passage, I would like to speak to you on the necessity and the importance of biblical authority and how it should be employed in the church, and also the importance of consistent biblical integrity. Since this is what's missing, this is what's necessary in the church today. In order for us to take every thought captive, we need these two things. And in order to exercise biblical authority, we need a humble and deep spiritual conviction and courage that comes from faith. And so this is what the Apostle Paul addresses first in verses 7 to 8. The warrior of Jesus Christ must confront those who are in error with God-given authority. If you are seasoned in your faith, you must exercise authority. If you are a parent, you are expected to exercise authority over your children. If there are legislators, there are law enforcement officers, there are police and uh, generals, they are expected to exercise authority. And there's an expectation for those to submit to that authority. It is God-given. But ours is a generation and a culture that hates authority because many, many people have established themselves in a self-styled authority and insist on reserving the right whether or not they themselves will submit to any authority, especially God's authority. This worldly attitude has seeped into the church and is waiting for the moment, lurking behind the scenes, looking for an opportunity, not to build up, but to break down. That self-styled authority never builds up the church, but it's always used and distorted to break down the church, like unruly writers who would use the opportune moment to express their sinful and violent proclivities. They, they hide behind the word injustice, but they really are desiring to rob and thieve and promote violence and take vengeance. And so there are also spiritually unruly men and women amongst God's people who grumble internally 
But if they constantly grumble, or they grumble openly at the wrong time, they will be easily singled out. So they look for an opportunity to voice their displeasure and to cause so much damage to the body as possible to express their contempt that they've always had against God's authority, especially to those who bring them the authoritative word of God or bring them the loving counsel through the word of God, who speak to them the truth in love. Satan is the great grumbler. He's the great complainer. He's the great slanderer. And that spirit is in our culture, and that spirit has seeped into the church. And there are many. And you could tell by some of the evidences that they leave, by, in the things that they post, um, that open, wide, worldwide slander that they post through the online media, or when they get together in small groups because they know that it cannot be widely disseminated, and so they look for like-minded people that they can gather with. And these types of, thing, types of things were happening in the church of Corinth. The worldly spirit that is governed by the enemy has seeped into the church and is lurking in the church. And so Apostle Paul deals with this, with his God-given authority. First, he tells them what they should be doing. Here, the NASB translators chose to translate the, the Greek in the indicative. He says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. But if you look at the Greek order, the, the things, the object, is in the forward position for emphasis. And the verb is at the end for another emphasis. You are looking. But it really, the second person plural can be an imperative. And here, we consider this as an imperative. So really what Paul is saying is, look at what is clearly before you. Or what is before you, look. That is the sense of the Greek. And so you'll see the interplay between the plural and the singular. When Paul says, look, he's saying it to the whole church. And then he focuses his attention on a particular individual. And here it is, if anyone. That's singular. Paul singles out one among them. And the condition is one of reality in the Greek. If anyone, oh yeah, there is someone. The condition is met. If anyone is confident, there is someone who is confident. And the perfect tense of the Greek tells us so. He holds this confidence. He was once confident. He's still confident. Who is this person who is confident? Well, when Paul addresses the false teachers, it's always in the plural, they. But here is, if anyone. There's a particular individual. Who is this particular individual? He is an individual, or she is an individual, who has been influenced by the false teachers. See, notice, Paul is addressing the church and the individual in the church. That's very important. Because we need to understand why this individual is impressed by the false teachers. Why were the Israelites impressed by the false prophets so many times? Why were a significant number of people following Korah in a rebellion? Why couldn't they just all respond to Korah and saying, Are you crazy? You're a Levite. You're a standing, upstanding leader in our community. How did you get to be that way? Oh, God set you apart. Through whom? Through whom? 
through the servant Moses, through Aaron, you are a kota. You're a high upstanding religious leader in our community of a religious clan. You're going to exercise that position to defy God's authority when it's God's authority who has singled you out to serve God's people? Are you crazy, Korah? Now, that should have been the logical response, but that would be expecting too much from people. These people are impressed at the false teachers. Why? Because the false teachers are that good, and the people are misled. They're blinded by their own confidence. They're blinded by their own pride. That's why Paul is talking about a person who is very confident. He's confident that he himself is a genuine Christian. That's what Paul says. In the mind of the judgment of such a person, he has an assurance of salvation. He has a living relationship with Jesus Christ. So therefore, his assessment could not be wrong. And that's part of the pride that the false teachers always appeal to. That's where the deception enters. It is through the individual opinions and assessment of himself. Here's a person who is deceived, who's following false teaching, but who believes that it is truth and truth from the Lord. Now talk about being deceived and false security. Now if this person knows anything about being a Christian, it is because God sent Paul and Paul's helpers, the cohorts, and to preach the gospel, and that's how he got saved. And he was instructed in the way so they can live out his Christian life so he can have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and maintain that. But a deceiver who panders to one's pride can tear down all that which was built up. And so Apostle Paul says, let him consider this again within himself. This is appeal to biblical reasoning. It's calling such a person to examine his own understanding, examine his own interpretation of genuine salvation, a true relationship with Christ. How can someone come to believe in the lies of the false teachers that those false teachers must be teaching the truth? They are genuine teachers of Christ. And Paul, Silas, his team of evangelists and church planners who came, I don't know, I have second thoughts about them. How can a person come to that place? Well, this passage answers those questions. How can this individual come to believe that true servants of the Lord Jesus Christ are now actually false? They're actually blinded, deceived, untrustworthy. For anyone who cannot see the true apostle and his fellow ministers as true believers, but fall into the slander of false teachers who flip it around and define these godly men to think the worst of them is truly deceived and blinded by their own pride. And that's what was happening in the church of Corinth. Everybody filled up with their own pride, acting on one's own independent authority, and their warped judgments produces that kind of an effect. They think that the true teachers who genuinely serve the Lord are the bad ones, and the false teachers who serve themselves are the good ones. This is not just simple naivete. This is blindness that comes from pride. And I noticed that this happens not only to brand new believers, and they often happen to brand new believers, young believers in the faith, but also those who are a bit growing, uh, what I would call spiritual teenagers. You see their rebellious ways, their self-authoring. They judge everything in black and white, 
and it is by their own standard. It's what feels right and good to them. They become the authority, and they constantly make judgments. And their sense of thwarting off the authority that God has placed, it is a spiritual teenage rebellion, and it is that attitude and the stage in their life where God is dealing with them. And of course, if they're genuinely of the Lord, they will grow out of it, they will repent and be humbled, and then they will be upstanding members in the church. Why? Because they will be reminded of their past sins and how many true servants of God and God's people that they have hurt. And by their own sinful recollection of their past, they will remain humble. It's exactly what happened to Apostle Paul when he was reminded that God allowed him to sin and persecute the church and then to save him, then he sought himself, he thought himself as the worst sinner possible. And that kept him humble and gave him the endurance and faithfulness. And it proved to be a positive force in Apostle Paul's life. God does cause all things to work together for the good of those who love God. And those are to call according to his purpose. And so this is exactly what God actually allows. Some people just need to go through this type of sin to, sh- to be shown how wicked they really are. The sinfulness of sin. Because a lot of uh, prideful, self-deceived people just don't see that. They see that they are A-plus students when it comes to spirituality. And uh, when, when they're actually failing in the very area where they should be growing. So acting on their own independent authority produces this kind of an effect. This what was happening of the few people in the church of Corinth. How many? We do not know. But there were significant numbers to the point that it brought Paul great grief in his heart and great disturbance in the church. After Satan questioned God's goodness and enticed Eve to make her own assessments based on her own authority, it was over. The battle was lost. The appeal to independent authority, you decide for yourself, is perhaps the most sinister and the great evil that is infiltrated into the church. And this appeals to the American ethos because we love independence. We have that spirit already ingrained in us. We don't want to be dependent on the Lord. We don't want to be submitted. It almost seems like enslavement, but it's a joyful enslavement. If, you, if you're mature enough, know about it, that we rather be enslaved to righteousness and to the Lord's goodness and mercy rather than enslaved to sin. And it's exactly what the Lord has done. Freed us so that we can be slaves of righteousness. But the naive, the immature, and the spiritually rebellious, they don't see it that way. They want to exercise their independent authority, and they're ripe targets for deception. And so the Corinthians needed to open their eyes to see this. Uh, independent authority that causes spiritual blindness really is a huge problem. And a, a church like Corinth, where individuals uh, thought themselves quite highly. A spiritual warrior often has to confront such error, such spiritual malady with God-given authority. And of course, it has to be from the Word of God and not from the man. Paul associates God-given authority in his proper employment as proof of genuine Christian leadership. And so in verse 8, he says, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, notice how he says our authority. Remember, 
I said that we need to pay attention to the interplay between the plural and the singular. He says, even if I boast, but he's not boasting about himself, but our authority. And he's recognized that it's God-given authority, not just to himself, but to other faithful leaders as well. But notice, it says, the which the Lord gave. Aha, it comes from the Lord. That's why the Lord dispenses to men. And for distinct purpose, here it is, for. And Apostle Paul uses two purpose clauses in the Greek to talk about building up, and the, that's the positive, and here's the negative, and not for destroying. Literally means tearing down. Building up, strengthening, and not for tearing down, weakening. Notice Paul does not shy away from letting the Corinthians know about his God-given authority as an apostle and his cohorts as apostolic helpers and delegates in the same mission sent by God. And so it's an eminent apostle giving credence to God-given authority and recognizing that other faithful men have been given that same authority. It is a corporate authority given to corporate leadership. How do you tell who genuinely has God-given authority? Now, this is how you can tell. They use their authority constructively to strengthen, help, to fight sin, and to build up, and never to destructively, never to control, never to manipulate, never to lord it over, and never to quench hope, never to dilute love, never to Weaken faith. God-given authority must always be employed to protect and to serve. That's just not the motto of the police department. That's all spiritual leadership. Even when the spiritual leadership must exercise authority to confront sin. Because all scripture is inspired by God for that very purpose. Even for rebuking. So you can correct And so that when when they confess and repent of it, then you can train them to be strong. But if you want to be loved by everybody and be well-spoken by everybody, but you still want to be a leader and be influential, this will be a major area of challenge. Because instead of giving the people what they need to be built up, you may want to do nothing, or rather, by doing nothing, you just let people gradually erode and crumble under the weight of their own sin and no one to help them, no one to address this issue. And so the true authority of the true leadership is never to destroy someone, to crush their faith in God. It's the opposite. Nevertheless, it is authority. There are many uh, pastors and church leaders who want just to be friends with their congregation members, and we should be friendly. We should be friends with them. They're brothers and sisters. We have things in common together, a common faith. But if they are placed in a position and trusted with God-given authority, they must exercise it humbly and carefully to build up. And part of that is to help people who are resisting Resisting the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the Word. Why do you know about that? Why do you know about a certain brother who's harboring sin? Why do you know about a certain sister who just won't change her speech and her aggressiveness? 
her fits, her acts of jealousy, envy, rage. They're confronted. Other people kind of shy away and they talk to them about it, but they won't change. What should the leaders do? You must exercise biblical authority. It's the way to love them. It's the way to protect and serve the church. It is the way to honor God who is holy. No warrior of Christ should ever wield the sword of the Spirit to damage the saints. But to defend the saints by opposing evil, by exposing falsehood, by quelling rebellion, so that these things could be openly confessed and repented of, and true believers will confess and repent of them. And they will be built up along with the rest of the saints. As Paul says, this is the way that you do it, and this is the way you avoid it. And he's talking about how to use authority and how not to use authority. Diligently laboring to build up the church is what Paul and the cohorts did. But the church, the false teachers who were actively destroying the church by deceptively, deceptively undermining the Lord's work and establishing their false authority to gain a hearing among the people, they use their crafty speech and their humanly influence to undermine the true spiritual leaders. Because you need to undermine the true leaders in order to, to deny them their God-given authority to exert your own, to influence. And Apostle Paul says, I will not be put to shame. Paul will not acknowledge the false teacher's attempt to pour contempt on all the labor that he and his cohorts has sent them to do in Corinth for God's glory and for their good. Paul is not going to acknowledge their false narrative that the Corinthians have been shortchanged by Paul. They've been misdirected by Paul. They have not been well taught by Paul. Or even worse, they've been abused and neglected and manipulated by Paul. All the lies. No, Paul will not be ashamed by such false rhetoric because the advocate, the true advocate, is the Lord Jesus Christ who affirmed his apostleship and who empowered him to labor with love at Corinth. So those who seek to destroy the church and to foment disunity usually do so by first attacking the true spiritual leaders who have been diligently ministering the flock. And that's why your ministry record of your faithfulness and God's hand in the consistency of equipping the saints for the work of service is a testament to all false slander against you. So the problem was just not with the false teachers. They are necessary in God's program for the testing of the church. Necessary. And that's why God told Israelites, I will send false teachers your way to test you. They are necessary part of God's program to strengthen his people. Not to cause them to fail, but to distinguish those who are truly loving the Lord and truly faithful to the Lord with those who are not. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, Apostle Paul says, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. That's the Greek particle of necessity. There must be. Not that it could be or should be or might be, but there must be factions. Why are there factions? 
Why is there a Paulus party and Peter party and Paul party and Christ party? Why, why are the people like divided? To show who are the approved and to highlight those who are approved. That may be evident. So the real problem was with those who claimed to be Christians. Those who are claiming to be biblical. Claiming to be doing God's will. Claiming to believe in the true gospel. Watch them distort the gospel to extreme libertinism or extreme legalism. Not the true gospel at all. The gospel of grace. gospel of joy and freedom. Power of the Holy Spirit. Transformed life. Gospel of sanctification. Gospel that continues to mold men and women's lives into holiness in the true knowledge of our great Savior, not the true gospel. Watch people talk the talk, but pour completely different meanings into those things and then do whatever they do because they are their own authority. They're trying to thwart God's will. So instead of silencing these false teachers, the proud, self-authoring Corinthians welcome their rhetoric and fell right into their trap. And so Paul has to show the Corinthians why, why he has to exercise his God-given biblical spiritual authority. And here we move on to verse 9. And that is, again, to demonstrate that he has been consistent all along. And this is God's way of affirming Apostle Paul and his cohorts in their spiritual and moral integrity. And so we've seen the warrior of Christ. He must sometimes confront erroneous individuals, sinful individuals, divisive individuals with God-given authority for constructive purposes to build up the church and correct and build them up. But at the same time, we need to recognize that that authority must be demonstrated and exercise biblically, and here it says, because this is God-honoring, and this is integrity, that is a way of worshiping the Lord who is consistent within himself. And so, this is the second aspect of Apostle Paul's weapons to combat false teaching, false teachers, false ideology, false philosophy, and those who fall prey to them. And that is, Biblical, spiritual, moral integrity. Verse 9, he says, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Notice Paul makes it very personal here. He goes back to the singular. Paul could go on extensively boasting about himself to show that he is in a category far above these fake teachers. And he has to basically practice the principle of Proverbs 26, to show their folly by showing their folly and speaking to them according to their folly. And, and Paul does this out of great love for them, to get their attention. Sometimes it's, uh, it's very difficult, you know. I, I have to carry this dumb mask around because I have to play the game that, uh, that there's a very, very dangerous disease out there that we could or could not have that is asymptomatic, but we could and could not pass to one another. Therefore, I have to wear it if I want to go into 
the market to buy some strawberries because if I don't wear it, they won't let me in. Now, I don't mind doing that because it doesn't affect my faith or convictions or the gospel. But here's the problem. Some of the people at our church have to struggle with a coworker who is a he, but who has now decided that he's a she and is insisting that him and everybody else play this insane game of his own personal gender confusion. Now that believer is struggling with this internal convictions and faith because he understands that this is tied with God's truth. And then now he's called why he doesn't play that game. And he's marginalized. And his job is on the line. And because many corporations have capitulated. Those are real issues here in Berkeley and in the Bay Area. It may not be in the Bible Belt where you are, maybe in more conservative areas. They're real issues that people deal with in order to be a Christian. There's a lot of intimidation. But you know, Apostle Paul talks about another kind of intimidation. See, false teachers practice this very same intimidation. It's a social intimidation. And Apostle Paul does not want to play that game. He doesn't want to intimidate people to obedience. I mean, he, he has to speak strongly and exercise God-given authority, but he doesn't want to frighten them to obedience, scare them to twist their arm. The warriors of Jesus Christ, therefore, has God-given authority, but refuses to use that authority unless it is constructive, unless it is teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness to thoroughly equip the saints. And so off-duty generals and policemen must never assume that he is still a general or a cop at the supermarket, you know, ordering the cashier to obey his commands. Definitely not at home, ordering his wife to obey his commands or his children. But he must demand obedience to refusing criminals or from frightened soldiers. He must, because there's a a greater task, a greater responsibility at hand. Proper authority is often found in moral integrity. Paul now cites the slanderous character assassination attempts of the false teachers against him. And he quotes their own words to them. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. First, take a look at what is not there, not what is there. First, take a look at what they don't say instead of focusing on what they do say. Notice, they don't say anything about his moral character. Notice that. Notice they could not authoritatively deny the truthfulness and the accuracy of Paul's teaching and doctrine. They could not pick apart his life nor his doctrine. These two things that Apostle Paul insisted that Timothy watch carefully if he's going to be faithful and last in the ministry. So even the false teachers could not deny the obvious. So they have to conjure up some ridiculous, slanderous nonsense that to discerning years 
it would be obvious. But of course, to the self-important, prideful, blinded, self-authoring types, it is not obvious. They're quite appealing. And this is where God separates people. They couldn't pick apart Paul's moral purity and righteous living. Couldn't do that. But notice what they do say, where the attacks are directed toward his external appearance and the content and the delivery of Paul's speech. The stuff that he talks about and the way he presents them. And look at the man, they say. No doubt Paul was not a very physically impressive individual. Church tradition indicates that he was a short and bald Jewish man. Sickly filled with scars from his persecutions. But since when did the church evaluate a mark of a spiritual leader by externals, by looking at the man? The false teachers on TV, they do their best to enhance their appearance and persona. That's what everybody seems to be concerned about, to look good on TV and to appear congenial to an unsuspecting audience. That seems to be what everybody is focusing on. How do I look? How do I appear to people? What do my friends think of me? That is not the mark of moral integrity. Those are symptoms of a moral compromise. Just to get on people's good side so they can peddle their poisonous doctrines and spread their poisonous influence. That's what false teachers do. True believers must evaluate leaders, therefore, based on the substance of that man's character, not on what they see or how they feel. Notice the other angle of attack against Paul, his delivery and the content, the logos, it says in the Greek, his word. Paul's preaching was not flowery, like many people who were trained in Greek rhetoric. Now today, most people are not trained in such rhetoric, but Clever communicators know what and how, what to say and how to say it to move people. They know where to go for moving his anecdotes, uh, inspiring quotations, um, eye-catching events, and even hidden important events in history. They know how to unearth those things and present them and interweave them with some spiritual lingo to inspire people as they walk out the door and say, wow, that was a a wonderful sermon. I was really blessed by that. But they can't recall what the passage was about, and they have no intent on living out the word in their life in obedience. They, They were not challenged to confess their sins and to pray and depend upon the Lord, to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, to sanctify them. They're, they're not challenged to honor the Lord with their lives and obedience? No. There's no challenge. There's no confrontation of sin. There's just a humanistic appeal. Well, the Greeks had uh, all the trappings of communication style, eloquence, packaging their speech to impress the hearers because it was a non-visual culture, you know. People were trained to listen and hear, for even for hours. They went to large meetings, even paid money to hear a great orator speak. That was a form of entertainment as well. And in that kind of a culture, it is a surprise to us 
that those who insist on preaching and teaching the word use simple and clear words. And often, people who are superficial and self-important, they say, ah, that wasn't very deep. It wasn't very deep. But highfalutin fancy talk give off an air of intelligence, expertise, and overall impressions of credibility. And quoting Dr. Frank Lee Fantastic, you know, left and right, and esoteric languages that they've acquired, picked here and there, that they they have no knowledge of. But how untrue all that is. Just read a liberal commentary and see all the fancy lingo and that is devoid of any spiritual power or depth or truth, then you'll see. And so if we're going to get any commentary on the Apostle Paul and what his speech and his teaching was like, then let it be from God's own word. The natives of Lystra is described in Acts 14.12. These are unbelievers who heard Apostle Paul, and this is how they responded. Acts 14.12, and they began calling Barnabas Zeus, because he had that gravitas and authority, he's an older man, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Paul was gifted in speech. He was trained in all the arts. He was master at multiple languages. He understood Greek philosophy and argued at Areopagus, Mars Hill, with the best of the Athenian philosophers. But, That's not how Paul approached the good news of the gospel, nor the teaching of the word of God. And he confessed that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So that no one will say, you know what, I read that book and it just really made sense to me, and I decided to follow Jesus so that you will never say that. But rather you would say, I was lost in sin and by, by God's mercy, he showed me what kind of wretch I was. I confessed my sins. The Lord convicted me, turned me around, poured out his grace, applied the blood of Jesus on the cross on my soul, washed me clean, gave me a new standing before him as a child of God gave me the promise that he will always be with me and take me into his own and united me with others that he has saved in his incredible adoptive family of God. I was a sinner. God saved me. Now I am among the saints. You know, Apostle Paul wanted the power of transformed lives. And he knew he couldn't artificially create that by just talking them into it, or using his man-made authority to scaring them into it. Paul wanted the believers to fully rely on the power of God, not only to save, but to sanctify. Man-centered persuasion will not bear the fruits of repentance and faith and holiness, but God's power will and always does. And so don't be too quick to want to gain more and more biblical information. And for us preachers, don't be so quick and so eager to gain more and more members into the church. But desire to live a committed and dedicated life of holiness and purity, pleasing to God. Watch your life and doctrine carefully. Make sure that you are 
same in the public sphere as you are in the private sphere. And so Apostle Paul, verse 11, says, Let such a person consider this. Notice the singular again. Paul challenges such naive follower of the false teachers, the gullible supporters of the slanderous attacks, to think deeply about what is really happening. That what we, notice the plural, are in word by letter when absent, such persons, plural, we are also indeed when present. There's no duplicity, there's no moral inconsistency, no bait and switch in their tactics, no smoke and mirrors and technique. What you see is what you get, is what Apostle Paul says, not only of himself, but like-minded, true servants of Christ. This is what we should all have in common in our fellowship in the IFCA. There should be none of these inconsistencies in you and me. What you see is what you get, and this is the way that we want to be before the Lord. While he writes, while in absentia, will be shortly be demonstrated when Paul returns to Corinth. All we'll see, even those believers who never met him, but who got saved through other people's testimony and witness, they shall see how eminently consistent Paul is in his integrity. Paul has no esteem for false teachers. He's not so concerned about them as much as their influence on the Corinthians. With an ironic counterattack, Paul refuses to stoop to the level of the false teachers, but he exposes their phony and fake techniques. Verse 12, for we are not, notice the plural, this is consistent among all men of integrity, all spiritual leaders, we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Watch out if you are self-promoting. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not without understanding. Just because the enemy lies and cheats, should the allies fight fire with fire? Should God's servants also use the same techniques? After all, all is fair in war, in spiritual warfare? Really? Just because the enemy uses unconventional warfare tactics, should God's servants? Just because they slander, should you? Just because they send mass emails accusing, should you? Just because they gather and pass lies, gossip, slander, and other attacks, should you respond likewise? Just because they post stuff online, should you respond and saying this is all garbage? Here's the real truth. Paul refuses and writes in a resounding, no way. Paul's not going to yield his integrity. He's not going to play their game of one-upmanship, of self-promotion. He's not going to set up his own man-made standard and meet it and pat himself on the back and says, I'm an A-plus student. Paul is not ultimately accountable to men. He knows to whom he is accountable. His rivals were certainly not interested in measuring themselves by Paul's standards. They could never meet up to Paul's own standards, which, are, which is the Lord's standards. But they insisted on having Paul measured by their warped and phony standards. Paul says, they're not even sensible. They are without understanding. It shows they're unprincipled men. They set up their own self-styled standards. And they project. Most false teachers project. 
That's why so many of the prosperity preachers are idolaters. Their true love is the love of gain, love of themselves, love of money, love of pleasure. They project that, and therefore they teach a false doctrine, as if this is God's will, as this blasphemous distortion. And this is the same spirit that is working now in the sons of disobedience because they project. They're the true rebels. They're the true spiritually abusive, lying, deceptive people, but they will attack and they will project upon those who are faithful. And so with an ironic twist, Paul states the obvious for the Corinthians to consider. Some, someone external has to be the judge. Some external objective standard must be the true standard. Not the person who's judging themselves. You know, you, you, you don't just take a test and then you give yourself a grade. That's not how it works in integrity. The false teacher successfully managed to convince the Corinthians to be their own judge. You judge for yourself, they said. So they enticed them to judge wrongly, the founder of the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul. Instead of appealing to God's word, the false teachers appealed to the flesh and to their own self-style standards. Appeal to emotion. Appeal to the flesh, appeal to self-assessment, appeal to eisegetical interpretation of Scripture, appeal to the opinions of men. All are the tools of those who lack ministerial integrity. They never say, hey, look at this passage of Scripture. This is God's will. This is what God wants you to do. Warriors of Christ do not make such subjective appeals or judgments. They don't twist the word of God. Rather, they appeal to God's omniscience, God's sovereignty, and God's clear revealed word that tells us exactly what he means and what he says. Therefore, the true warriors of Christ must properly apply God-given authority in constructive ways to build up the church. Watch out for those people who tear down the church who attack the leadership, who are influential. Because remember, it's always the leaders and the influential people who cause the greatest damage. And then, there are those who carefully guard the integrity, their relationship with Jesus Christ, and seek to be consistent with what they know they ought to be as a true Christian. We live in a generation of self-authoring cowards, who are quick to attack faithful men, but they always hide behind some cloak, a manufactured facade. They refuse to do the hard work of self-discipline, godly living, and faithful serving. Unprincipled men will attract other unprincipled men. But you, O man of God, you, O woman of God, be the faithful slave that you ought to be to our great master. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 to 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And you and I, lack the capacity to grow in love. So, love hopes all things. 
believes all things and bears all things and endures all things. So keep loving the flock, even when you're hurting. 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Suffer for the gospel by the power of God. And rejoice. 2 Timothy 2.3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Ah, our momentary light affliction does not compare to the weight of eternal glory. Let us fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who for his glory, God's glory, on our sake, has endured great suffering and shame, and now he is glorified and exalted above all names. And so as a Christian warrior, endure, persevere, and continue to be faithful and serve God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your reminders that as growing believers, as maturing saints, you call us to be the warriors for our Lord Jesus Christ, to protect and to serve. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your authority, not man's, not to tear down and to break down and to destroy, but to build up and strengthen and help and serve. Help us to do that wisely and for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the benefit of others, never, never for our sake. And Lord, teach us to value the preciousness of the integrity that you have instilled in us from early on in our Christian walk, that we desire to be the same, that is in the external, that is in the internal. And Lord, we struggle with this. We're not as pure and we're not as consistent as the Lord Jesus and not as the Apostle Paul, but we desire to be. We desire to be consistent in this area. So we seek your help so that we would not look good for men, not for our sake, but because we bear the name of Jesus Christ and because of the work and the labor you have entrusted to us and for the gospel's sake and for the sake of our great Savior. Lord, would you keep us low to the ground, humble, dependent on you, always trusting and leaning on you and not on our own understanding. Strengthen and encourage your people today who are laboring in the Church of Jesus Christ in the IFCA. Help them not to grow weary, but help them to endure and persevere. Looking forward to the day when you will say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.